Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Baron Vaughn. One of my great-grandparents. I was raised by my great-grandparents. Totally different story. (laughs) For a different risk. That and more. But before that, musical ridiculousness. Take it from this redhead queer. You don't have time to go to the pool. It will be packed with so many people you'll want to scream, so use stamps.com instead. You use your own computer and printer to print your U.S. postage for your letters and packages. We use stamps.com. Why don't you use stamps.com? Right now, get this special offer when you use my promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial, and we know that's just confusing. (gasps) Plus $110 bonus off for the digital scale. And free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. Enter RISK. And just one more little ditty here about Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform where sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. Where can you find everything you need to create an exceptional website? Squarespace.com Squarespace.com And you can drag and drop your images to upload. With Squarespace.com, your site will look great on any device. Building state-of-the-art web pages and blogs has never been easier. So try Squarespace.com today! 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 
dear God, my lungs. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code RISK to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Polyrhythmics Behind Me Now. We're calling today's episode Trust. These are three extraordinary stories. Wherein the storyteller trusted someone, maybe wisely, maybe not, but ultimately it was the way that the storyteller came to trust him or herself, their their own intuitions, their own instincts, that's such an inspiration. Now, there will be violence, there will be abusive behavior coming up in uh, some of these stories. (laughs) Also, (laughs) there's another thing that people have been concerned about lately. Uh, Some people have been tweeting, hey, why is there so much poop on risk? And I got to tell you, look, we work very hard to make sure that there's a good mix of funny stories, scary stories, beautiful, sad, strange, inspiring, whatever kinds of stories, right? And we have to just go with the very best stuff that has recently come down the pike. And all I can say is shit happens. Everybody poops, and because they don't want to talk about it other places, they feel like, you know, (laughs) here's the one place they can. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the remarkable Ashley Bailey. Ashley reached out to us from Alabama. She worked very hard on her story, and we did too. And I'll have a lot more to say about it afterwards. But before that, we're going to start with the fantastically talented Andrew Agapur. Now, this is a recording from another storytelling show. In fact, one of our very favorite storytelling shows in the country, The Monty, is in the Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill Triangle over there. Just a fantastic show put together by Jeff Polish. You can also find their podcast at themonty.org or just The Monty on iTunes. Be sure to check them out for more. Here he is now, Andrew Agapur, with a story we call Eye to Eye.
I grew up small and never learned how to fight. So whenever I find myself in conflict, I find it's best to look the other person straight in the eye and use my words to defuse the situation. But it's hard to look someone straight in the eye when they're behind you. And it's hard to use your words when they're strangling you, hoping to leave you dead in an abandoned warehouse that sits at the outskirts of Charleston, South Carolina. This was February in 2005, and the story of how I got there is, I like to think, the story of America. (laughs) You see, I was born uh, the child of two immigrants, an Iranian father and a British mother. I attended a mosque, I was Muslim, and the mosque I went to was full of a diverse mix of people. There were Arabs and Persians, Africans, Filipinos. I went to an integrated public school. So the fact that I was this tiny, nerdy, dark brown kid with asthma didn't matter because all of us were from all over the color spectrum. I was born and raised in the melting pot. The first time I ever experienced direct racism was when I was a teenager uh, in the aftermath of 9-11. And so it was after that that I decided that I was going to become passionate about social justice work. I wanted to fight racial inequality. I went to college, became a poli-sci major. I also volunteered for a local advocacy campaign for the homeless, and I wanted to be the one to be in the population conducting surveys. I wanted to meet these people eye to eye. So my first day uh, visiting homeless shelters, I pulled up my Volvo, I was wearing an Oxford shirt, brought my clipboard, uh, and nobody wanted to talk to me for some reason. Uh, I made the rounds, people thought it was really weird, and finally, one guy agreed to talk to me. His name was Tony. He was this really big man with really sharp features. He was wearing a camo cap, tattered jeans, and a bright orange shirt. Uh, The first thing he said was, hey, you want to interview me? If you buy me a beer first. I was like, that's actually pretty cool. I like this guy. Uh, I was like, so charmed. I was like, sure, I'll buy you a beer. And so I walked him to a corner store. And when we got to the corner store, I was so thrilled that I wasn't being carded at the age of 20 that I didn't really notice that Tony was eyeing my billfold. Then Tony said that he couldn't drink the beer at the homeless shelter, so we should go to a safe spot that he knew a few blocks away. And I was like, that sounds great. Let's do that. And we walked to this safe spot, and he was totally silent the whole time. It wasn't until we got into that abandoned building that he slipped behind me and put his arm around my neck. And it's so strange sharing this now because it's so obvious. There are so many warning signs. But at the time, I was so passionate about the work, so invested in rebuilding that colorblind childhood past that I couldn't see any of those red flags. Tony's right arm was strong enough to actually lift me off the ground. And so I was just hanging there as if his clenched arm were a noose. His left hand was then free to grab my left wrist and pin it behind my back. He was completely silent the entire time and totally steady as my body dangled there, spasming like a caught fish. The only thing that I could see was a thin rectangle of light ahead of me from the entryway from the street. I knew I had to somehow talk my way out of this situation, but I couldn't breathe. 
All I had was my right hand. And so I wedged it between his arm and my throat. And I lifted up and I got just a little bit of space. And I took a breath. And then instinctively, this is what came out of my mouth. I don't like wrestling, Tony, so if you wrestle me, I'm not going to take you for lunch every week. And he sat me down. And he, and he kept his arm still around me and just kind of left it a little bit looser and let me talk a little bit more and then just a stream of lies. It's like, oh yeah, for this interview project, I'd take you out to lunch every week, but I don't like wrestling, it's not fun for me, and uh, for lunch, we'd go to Ryan's, it's an all-you-can-eat buffet, super good, I love it there, but really, we just can't wrestle because I just don't like it. And he let go, and then he reached his left arm out and he grabbed his beer, and he was like, that sounds good. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I was more amazed then than you could possibly be now. But the crazy thing was, as relieved as I was, I had to keep up with the lie, which means I hung out with him for another 10 minutes while he finished his beer. And then I had to walk back with him to the homeless shelter, because that's where my car was parked. And then he offered me uh, that, like, I should give him my phone number so he could call about Ryan's. And I was like, sure. And I gave him my real number. <laughs> I think I was in such shock. And I, I was committed to making that story true. And so I gave him my real number. And he walked away. And I got in my Volvo. And I locked the doors. And I cried. And then I called my best friend, Alan. And I told him everything that happened. And then I hung up, and I turned the ignition, and I just lived the rest of my life. And I told like a handful of people about this story. Uh, and whenever I told the Tony story, it was ultimately a story about how clever I was, about how I said just the right thing that appealed to his self-interest, but also pretended to be naive enough that I wouldn't call the cops. It's a story about brains over bronze. It's a story that ends with me driving away. Uh, but that's actually not where what happened ended. And I've actually never told this story to anybody else before, what happened next. You see, Tony did call me, like a week later. Uh, and I met with him again. And we continued to meet every month for the better part of a year. Uh, the first meeting, I wanted to keep up the auspices of an interview. Uh, and I didn't want to, like, drive him in my car to Ryan's, which is far away, and, like, be alone in the car with him. And I needed a safe place to meet, so I said to come meet me at my dorms on the first floor, because <laughs> I knew there was a security guard. And we sat in the lobby, like, in two chairs next to each other, and I interviewed him, even though this project was long over. Uh, I'd, I had dropped out of it. Uh, and, I mean, I just got to ask him whatever I wanted, so I asked him, like, well, do you have a lot of friends? Uh, like, what are some of your hobbies? Uh, and, and as we started talking, it got more and more serious, the conversation. And then I finally asked him, what's it like to be black? You see, my own identity as a person of color was itself slipping away. I was no longer a practicing Muslim by then. Also, over the course of uh, like my late adolescence, my British genes kicked in, and so it's a lot whiter than ever before, which means that when I showed up to college, I just showed up as a generic white boy. 
And it was awesome, frankly. Uh, being white was so great, I was introduced to Frisbee and alcohol <laughs> and bacon. I'd never tried bacon before. <laughs> Try bacon at the age of 20, it's amazing. Because you have like the capacity to understand how good it is. But I was feeling kind of lost about my identity and feeling guilty about abandoning my ethnicity. When the interview was over, Tony asked for $20 so he could take a cab back to the homeless shelter, and I gave it to him. We continued to meet month after month, and over time, the nature of those meetings changed. Tony asked for more and more money, $20, $30, $60. And we spoke for less and less time until it ended up that I was just driving to some pay phone at the other part of town and giving him cash through the driver's side window and driving away. For Tony, this was clearly an excellent situation. <laughs> I imagine that he has his own version of this story uh, where, he's, where it wasn't me who tricked him. It was he who figured out this opportunity to milk my white guilt for every last drop. I imagine that I would drop him off that money and drive away and he would brag to his friend like, mug a white boy once, get paid for a day. Teach a white boy to mug himself, get paid for a lifetime. And the thing is, he would be right because that's kind of what was going on. I felt so guilty. Uh, I felt really guilty about the fact that I was passing as white. I felt really guilty about the privilege that I inherited from my parents who'd worked their whole lives just so that I could get high and eat bacon. Uh, <laughs> and Tony, for me, uh, was connected to that. It was like I owed some cosmic debt, and Tony came into my life as the collector. It's ironic, looking back, because I thought I was colorblind, but really I was reducing Tony to his black body his black body that couldn't pass like mine could, his black body that wasn't born into the same America that mine was. You know, I was attacked by Tony the person, and it's really hard to say this, but I think that I actually had thought of his blackness as more significant uh, than his personhood, which is why it was so easy uh, for me to get into that relationship because of what that blackness represented. Tony and I fell out of touch after that, uh, and I actually became a lot less interested in working directly eye-to-eye -eye with people in the world. I got scared. I went from social justice work to political theory to then switching majors to philosophy, philosophy being about as far away from a homeless shelter as you could possibly get. I mean, what is the history of philosophy but just a parade of rich white men who never went outside, uh, and that was a safe place for me. I met a woman in one of my classes, and our relationship was as brief as it was toxic. Uh, she was very emotionally manipulative and dumped me in this spectacularly awful way. And so I spent the summer, uh, late in my college years, just super depressed and distraught. To deal with it, I would go on these long walks all around Charleston uh, with my first love, marijuana. And on one of these walks, I found myself in a pretty bad neighborhood really late at night. I was walking pretty quickly to try to get home, and I turned a corner, and all of a sudden, I was like right up in a group of five or six guys who had been waiting there quietly. The hair on my neck stood up. This felt like a dangerous situation. I pivoted to get away, and I heard my name. 
And it was Tony. I think it was because of that breakup. Uh, I wasn't scared. I wasn't feeling guilty. I wasn't even relieved that I knew one of these guys. I was angry. I was pissed off. I was mad at Tony for taking advantage of me. I was mad at myself for being so passive. And so I snapped. I said, Tony, I've got nothing for you. I've got nothing to give you right now, and I'm going away. And I stormed off. And Tony broke with the group and followed me. And he called after. I said, are you okay? And I turned around, and I said, no. And then Tony said, well, chin up. Now, if Tony were behind me and told me to lift my chin, <laughs> I mean, fool me once, shame on you. <laughs> but he was in front of me. And so when I lifted my chin, we were looking at each other eye to eye. And we were just two people for the first time. And then Tony turned and walked away. Thank you. So I was in my late 20s, and I just left my husband and really looking for something to give my life some purpose or meaning or direction. My job wasn't doing it. I definitely was struggling financially. I had all these leftover childhood issues that I had never really addressed, and I think that's something that kept me from feeling content in any situation. And I felt like I needed something to shake things up or just make me feel something, you know. I really couldn't handle peace and quiet at the time because that's when all those childhood things would start coming to the surface that I didn't really want to look at. So I was better off if there was chaos in my life. Although I wouldn't have called it that. I, I called myself just looking for fun or looking for a relationship, but ultimately I was looking for chaos. I put an ad on Craigslist on a whim late at night one night. I was probably high or drinking, and I, I just put a really simple ad. I just said something like, white female looking for fun with black male, because that was kind of my thing at the time. I think because it was just something different, and in the South, it's a little bit, um, a little more taboo, I guess. I got a ton of responses, obviously, but one was from Larry, and he didn't say much of anything in his email to me. It just said something like, hey, what's up? I'd like to get together. But he looked really good in his picture. <laughs> he was really tall and big, and it was still like a gangster-type style with the baggy clothes and everything, but he was dressed up. like He had like a matching hat and jacket, and he looked like kind of exactly what I was looking for, a bad boy, but also intelligent and together at the same time. But all we did was meet at Wendy's for like five minutes. It was just right in front of my house. And once I saw him, I, I don't know. At that time, I wasn't very good at thinking about consequences or thinking about long-term effects of my decisions. I was very much in the moment. I just invited him over after five minutes at Wendy's. 
he came over to my house and I remember like he was standing there, he was rolling a blunt <laughs> and I was just so fascinated by him. He was from Baltimore and to me in Alabama like that was really exciting, I don't know. <laughs> like he was from a big city and had had all kinds of crazy experiences and at first I was talking about being fascinated by people and learning how to read people and understand people and he said, yeah, I've done a lot of reading about people too. When I was in prison, I read the book, The 48 Laws of Power, and I got a lot from that, and I've really been working on implementing those strategies in my life now. He didn't tell me what he was in for or how long he was in. He didn't tell me any details, but he mentioned in passing that he had been in prison, but he wouldn't let me read the book. And that's like basically his Bible. <laughs> and as we went along in our relationship, I definitely saw him put those principles into use with people like I know one particular was it's something about like keeping your own cards close to your chest you know I did see that there was danger there but that appealed to me and I felt like confident enough in my ability to protect myself I guess that I wouldn't get sucked into the danger or that I could play with it and come back out of it and be okay but the deeper in I got with him, you know, he just got into my head. He was a master manipulator. We were getting closer. We were spending more and more time together. I was feeling really good about things with him, you know. And we were driving on the interstate, and he brought up the idea, have you ever thought about escorting? I said I actually had. Because of my history of sexual abuse and things like that, I was very, very open sexually. It wasn't a big deal to me. Um, it didn't scare me the way maybe it would some other people to think about selling my body. Like That didn't seem like an out-of-the-question or crazy idea to me. I mean, I was already being pretty promiscuous, and I thought, you know, why not make money for it? <laughs> of course, he was excited that he found somebody that was thinking like that. And we just started talking from there and kind of brainstorming and about ways that we could build it into, like, a real business. It was kind of fun, really, because we started talking about how much money we can make and how easy it would be and what kind of girls we should go after. And I think that was one of his tactics now, looking back, too, is to make me feel like we were partners in it. You know, like, it was me and him starting this business, so to speak, and I just had to do the job until we could find enough other people to do it. There was this one guy I saw, like, I would say late 70s or something. So already that was a little uncomfortable. <laughs> he had had prostate surgery or something where he had a pump um, that you had to pump to get his penis up. <laughs> I guess, you know, because he was older and his skin was kind of thin, like, while he was doing that, he somehow scratched himself and I was on top of him, and the next thing I know, I looked down, and there was blood all over the sheets in the hotel. And so, obviously, I stopped, and I freaked out, and we figured out what it was, but I still told him, you know, I'm sorry, but this is not okay. <laughs> you know, you have to leave. I made him leave, and I called Larry, and he just, like, lost his mind because he was really um, 
constantly thinking about protection and me getting exposed to something because he was having sex with me too so he shows up at the hotel room and he's got like two things of bleach with him and all these cleaning supplies and he's just like freaking out and making me clean the whole hotel and that was one time that was crazy there was just blood everywhere and he was so mad at me like I did something the first time he got like physical with me was in Baltimore when we were up there and he took me to a nice restaurant. I don't remember why, but we had a fight, and I walked out. We went back to the hotel, and it was still really new in the relationship, and I had just started escorting. It was the very beginning of it. He came back to the hotel after getting us fast food. I just, like, let him have it like I would normally with anybody, and I told him how upset I was and how angry I was. I don't even remember what the fight was about, but he stood there and listened to me for a minute and then he walked over to me and just slammed the food in my face. (laughs) It was like some kind of chicken with a sauce on it and he just pushed it in my face and it was all dripping down my face. I just stood there in shock for a minute. (laughs) I felt humiliated, you know. I don't know what I thought I was going to do, but I just ran towards him like I was going to attack him or something. And of course he's like way bigger than me and he just grabbed me and choked me and he held me down on the bed until I stopped I'd never experienced anything like that from anybody, so it was completely new and shocking to me. I was in Baltimore with him, so I didn't know anything about where I was or how to leave or, you know, I was kind of stuck, I felt, because I did have that first impulse to just leave, but I just pushed it down because I didn't feel like there was a way out of the circumstance. And and also, after that, he was super sweet and super nice. Of course, classic, classic domestic violence scenario, but he was super nice and sweet and apologetic, and the rest of the trip was good, and I just let myself forget about it, I guess. Even though I had started escorting, I was still working my social work job for a while. For several months, I was doing both. I was escorting at night and on the weekends and working my regular job during the day. There was one incident where Larry's baby mama, she was really angry when she found out about me, and she came to my job and assaulted me. Uh, She hit me in the face and pulled my hair and was chasing after me. My job insisted that I file a police report. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have because Larry didn't want me to but my job said that I had to so I did and the cop who took the police report when I met him and was sitting in his police car he put his hand on my thigh and ran it up the inside of my thigh and was trying to do stuff with me so when I told Larry about that instead of responding like you would think he would as a boyfriend or someone that cared about me he was like oh good that's great. It'll be really good for us to have a cop on the line. That could come in handy sometime, you know, to have something on a cop or whatever. So his whole mentality was just, good, that'll be good for business, for us to have a cop that we have something on. I only had one client ever that I actually enjoyed being with, but other than that, like, I didn't enjoy any of it really but it was just easy and Larry would sit outside the room a lot of times and listen so I would like walk the line between making my client feel like I was enjoying it but not sounding like I was having too much fun because if I did he would question me afterwards and yell at me (laughs) for enjoying it. 
when I got the call, Larry was actually out of town. He was he was constantly trying to recruit other girls, which was a lot harder than we thought it would be. <laughs> so he was out of town at the time. A friend had told him about a girl. He could talk into it. So he had gone to sort of win her over and left me home to work. At that point, he trusted that I wasn't going to take any money or do anything crazy, that I was just going to do what he wanted me to do, which I did. And I was picking up some food, and I was sitting in the parking lot of the restaurant when I got the call, and it was somebody I had never talked to before. And he was really nice. I talked to him for a long time, longer than I normally would, because he was just really personable and (laughs) nice. And his request was for me to come to Huntsville, which is about two hours north of Birmingham. It was not something I would normally do. I sometimes did out calls, but most of the time I just had people come to me. And if I did an out call, it was just local. So to go two hours away was a big deal. I had tried to do that before, and every time I had gotten burned, like the person wouldn't show up or something, and I'd end up just wasting my time. So I was a little bit hesitant, but he was really friendly and gave me a lot of details that made me feel more secure about the situation. Like, he told me about some girls he had seen in the past, and I recognized their names. I knew they legitimately were escorts in the area. And he was offering me $1,000. I mean, normally I would make between, like, 150 and 200 to see somebody. So that was a significantly higher amount than I would normally make. And that made me a little leery also, but it was a long drive. And he had a special request, <laughs> a fantasy that he was trying to fulfill, And so he explained that those were the reasons he was willing to pay that much. And also because he had tried to get other girls to do it in the past and no one was ever willing to do it. So if I was willing to do it, he was willing to pay that amount. And that made sense to me. What he wanted me to do was to show up at his door, at his house, totally naked. He said, I've always had a fantasy of getting a knock on the door, opening it, finding a beautiful naked woman who would just come in without saying a word and get straight to business. To me, that just didn't sound like that big of a deal. I mean, I was naked all the time. It was a big part of the job. I was comfortable being naked, you know? So he said that he lived in the outskirts of Huntsville, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And he did have neighbors, but they were kind of far away. He told me his porch light was out and he hadn't replaced it yet, so it would be dark, but that that would work well because, you know, nobody would see me. And he told me that the grass was grown up because he had been out of town for his job and he hadn't had a chance to cut it. So, you know, don't be worried. It's not an abandoned house. It's just I haven't had a chance to mow my grass. And it didn't seem like anything too scary to me just to be there naked. I really wasn't worried about that part. That seemed easy to me. I called Larry after I hung up with the guy. Once I agreed to do it, he was all for it, of course, because of the amount of money. (laughs) And he, you know, he had the same reservations that I did because, like I said, we had been burned before going out of town. But I reassured him that the guy seemed really legitimate. And so... He said, go for it, you know. So it was the next day that I went, and um, I did call Larry when I was leaving because I always checked in with him before I did anything. I also called the guy and talked to him and made sure that we were still on, and we were. I think I called him again, like, halfway there because I was just worried, you know, that he was going to back out. I mean, that if I had any fear, if I had any anxiety, that was what it was, that I was just going to waste my time and that he wasn't going to show up. 
it never occurred to me to be afraid of anything else, you know. But every time I talked to him, he said we were still on, and he kept reassuring me, so I was feeling pretty good about it. I mean, the drive up there, I was just relaxing, listening to music, singing, you know. I was fine. Once I got off the interstate and I was in more of the country, I was looking for all the markers that he told me about. I saw the different places that he said, and I knew I was going the right direction. And I did start to get a little bit nervous because the sun was going down, and it really was the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And I stopped seeing any type of establishments, you know, like there were no more gas stations or food places or anything at that point and it was getting really dark. There wasn't a lot of lights or anything, and so I was getting a little nervous at that point, just that I wouldn't be able to find the place or that I would get lost in the middle of nowhere or something. But my biggest motivation was the money because when we had plenty of money, Larry was happy and relaxed, and he would let me do things like get my nails done or my hair done or get clothes or take a break, you know, take a day off, or he would just spontaneously take us to the beach or something. When we had money, life was good. (laughs) But when we didn't, life was awful, you know, because he was stressed and he would channel that all towards being violent with me or yelling at me or whatever. And that's why I was willing to take this risk. I tried to call him a couple of times, but I didn't have any signal, so I wasn't able to get through. I finally did find the street that his house was on. Then I couldn't find his house, and I drove up and down that street probably five times. And at that point, I was starting to get a little panicky because I just thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to find it, and I'm going to lose the money, and Larry's going to be pissed, and I've wasted a whole day doing this. And finally, I drove one more time down the street, like super slow, shining my headlights as best I could on the addresses, and I finally found his driveway. And I realized then why I hadn't seen it because everything around it People were home at their houses and there were lights on, but his driveway was completely dark, like pitch black dark. But, you know, he had said that it would be that way, so that didn't alarm me too much. I was just happy that I found it. It looked exactly how he said. The grass was grown up. (laughs) I went down the driveway, and he had told me there was a little parking area on the right, and I saw that. It was exactly how he said it would be. There were woods on either side of the driveway, They weren't so thick that you couldn't see through them. Like I could see the lights of each neighbor's house on either side through the woods, but they were a good distance away. And it was just a small little house. It almost looked like a cabin in the woods. I tried to call him again, and he actually did answer that time. And he said that he was ready and waiting, but that he wanted to get off the phone because that kind of ruined the fantasy if we were talking, you know. And so I took off all my clothes and sprinted up the steps to the door. I didn't have anything with me. I had my keys and my phone, and that was it. I didn't have a bag or anything. There's a screen door. It was old and creaky, (laughs) just like you would imagine. And I opened that, and I knocked on the wooden door, and I heard nothing at all. No lights came on, no noises inside, nothing. So I just was standing there on the porch. It was completely dark completely silent in the middle of the woods (laughs) and I'm wondering all kinds of things at one time is there somebody behind the door waiting for some reason hiding out is there someone in the bushes right beside me watching me is there someone in these woods total silence so I knocked again and nothing happened I was getting a little worried I didn't want to give up I made it that far (laughs) 
So I just kind of took a deep breath. I knocked a third time, and again, nothing. And right as I was about to turn around and go back to my car and, you know, admit defeat, (laughs) I heard a noise behind me. There was a man walking towards me. I saw the flashlight, like the light from the flashlight in the dark bouncing around as he was walking towards me from the direction of one of the neighbor's houses out of the woods. Uh, I couldn't see him really very well at first. I just saw, like, a shadowy figure. He was taller than me, but kind of on the short side still, thin, mid-40s. He had on, like, a plaid shirt and a hunting cap. (laughs) It was this time of year. It was maybe October, November, so it was just starting to get cool in Alabama. I just stood there. I didn't really know what else to do as this man walked towards me. And he got to me, and he looked me up and down. It was very obvious that we both (laughs) were aware of the fact that I had no clothes on. And he didn't really hide that he was looking at me. And I just kind of covered myself up the best I could, and I didn't acknowledge it. (laughs) And he asked me what I was doing there. I said, well, I was supposed to meet somebody here, but they're not here. They haven't showed up. They're not answering the door. And he said, you're supposed to meet somebody here at this house? And I was like, yeah, I know it's this house. This is the right address, and it's just how they described it to me. But, you know, they're not coming to the door. I'm just talking to this man like I'm not standing in front of him naked, but (laughs) I didn't know what else to do, you know. He said, well, ma'am, I'm a neighbor, and we look out for this house because nobody's lived here for several years And we watch out for it to make sure that nobody vandalizes it or breaks in. In fact, the man who did live here killed himself three years ago. When he said that, I just felt terror start at the top of my head and just ooze down me. I just felt so incredibly vulnerable and scared in that moment. (laughs) He said, you need to get on out of here. And I was like, no problem. So I just ran to my car, jumped in, and drove away as fast as I could. I didn't stop to put my clothes on or anything. I just got out of there as quickly as I could. I drove until I saw a grocery store, so I pulled into the parking lot and put my clothes back on and tried to calm myself down. (laughs) I, I tried to call the guy several times from that parking lot, and it went straight to his voicemail every time, and it was a different name on the voicemail than he had told me his name was, but... He never did answer. I wasn't ever able to get in touch with him again. At first, when he introduced the idea of being naked, I wasn't intimidated by that at all. But after this happened, it made me feel so vulnerable (laughs) to not have anything on. Like, the whole situation made me feel really vulnerable. And, you know, not being dressed just added to that. I don't know. Maybe he was the guy and he set this whole thing up and that's what gets him off somehow is like seeing women in this vulnerable situation. I mean, that's really my best guess, but I don't know. I mean, he really legitimately might have just been a neighbor. It may be that somebody was waiting around back or waiting inside or something else was going to happen and he did save me. You know, I really don't know. And I mean, I'll never know, I guess. (laughs) But... The way he was and the demeanor that he had, I could see it going either way, if that makes sense. Like, he was not aggressive in any way, and he did sort of have a protective tone in his voice, like he was looking out for me. But again, that might be part of his weird fantasy. That might be part of what he likes to do, is be the rescuer or something of girls in vulnerable situations. I don't know. 
I called Larry as I was leaving the parking lot after getting dressed and crying, breathing hard, you know, just, I was still really shaken up. I definitely had the very strong feeling like I just escaped danger. I was looking to him to help me feel secure again because I was feeling extremely vulnerable. I think his first words were, so you didn't get the money? He showed a little bit of concern, but it was all for the money. I had this feeling like I was floating around in space, not tethered to anything. Like, oh, I really am on my own. But that's not the first time in my life I felt that way. My dad was the one who sexually abused me from the time I was a toddler until he left the house when I was around 14. And my mom was super depressed all the time. My mom's a great mom, but she was always checked out emotionally. So I had that feeling through my whole childhood of just floating around in space on my own. You know, I felt it really strongly in that moment. I was able to push it back down and get back to work the next day. Even though I realized he wasn't what I thought he was, it still didn't occur to me that I should leave him because I didn't really see other alternatives. You know, I didn't see that there were really any other options. I was going to be feeling alone regardless, so I just stayed. There was a time that I tried to leave. I went home to pack up my things and I was going to go to my mom's house. I wasn't sure where he was. We had been fighting on the phone and I had gone to a hotel to kind of hide from him. And so then I was going to go to my house and get my, or our apartment and get my stuff to leave. And I drove up and down the parking lot to make sure his car wasn't anywhere near there and that he wasn't in the apartment. I was still nervous though that he might come home at any minute and catch me packing up. Anyway, I went into the apartment, I went into our room, I opened the closet door, and he was standing there, <laughs> arms folded, just staring at me, like he knew I was coming, he was waiting on me. He came out, he was just talking to me really calmly, you thought you were going to leave, huh? You thought you were going to go, you're not going anywhere. He wasn't yelling or screaming or anything, he was super calm, and I think that was more scary, because <laughs> at this point I knew how to deal with him screaming, but him just being that calm, I didn't know what he was going to do. He followed me into the living room and he punched me in the stomach really hard and made me sit down and then he just lectured me for hours about how this is what I was born to do, stop trying to fight who I really am and embrace that I'm a whore. You know, I already kind of believed that about myself because of my childhood and stuff, so he just fed right into all those negative beliefs I already had about myself, and I accepted it. At this point, I had been escorting almost two years, and I was getting really tired of it. <laughs> Along with my relationship with him, you know, all of it together was really starting to get to me. So I had been looking for a job, hoping that if I could find something that brought in enough money, then maybe he would accept that and be okay with it. So anyway, there had just been a lot of strife between us because of that. I think he knew I was on my way out, and he was panicking. So he was more angry than usual. <laughs> so that day we had a fight because I had gone to a job interview, and he didn't want to hear that, of course. So we were arguing and fighting, and I finally told him I wanted him to leave, and I wanted to break up. I was in my car when I was talking to him, and he was in the house. And he said, okay, I'll leave. I'll leave, and I thought that seemed too easy, but 
whatever. I hung up and I just sat in my car and waited. And a few minutes later, I saw him come out with all his things and pack his car and leave. So I still felt like he wasn't fighting it as much as I expected. So it was too good to be true. So I followed him as he left. I wanted to make sure he got far enough away that he wasn't going to just turn right back around and come in and beat me up or something. I don't know exactly what I was thinking, but it made me feel better to follow him. So I followed him till he got on the interstate and he called me and he said, why are you following me? You need to go back home. You're going to find a surprise when you get there. I was like, what? What do you mean? He was like, well, I set the place on fire. And I thought that he was just full of shit. I thought it was just another thing to tell me to stop following him, you know. I was like, whatever, that's not true. I turned around anyway, and I went back home. And when I pulled up to the entrance of the townhouse complex, I saw three or four fire trucks and some police cars and smoke going up, and, like, my heart just dropped. I couldn't believe it. I felt dizzy. There were people running in and out. All the neighbors in the neighborhood were out watching. It was a really scary, surreal moment. I got out of my car and ran up to ask what was going on. I was crying, told them I was the owner of the house, and they made me, like, sit in the back of a police car for a really long time. But finally, I found out. He doused all my clothes in my closet with gasoline, and that's where he started it. But he also poured gas over everything in the whole place, so even the stuff that didn't burn was ruined because it was soaked in gasoline. The smoke was billowing out of the top windows of the second floor, and... He had been growing marijuana in the townhouse. I knew the weed was in there. I knew they were probably finding it, so that was a fear. I didn't know what was about to happen. I didn't know if I was about to go to jail, and I didn't know if my townhouse was going to be livable at all, if it, if I was going to be able to get back in there. I didn't have a job. I, I just couldn't believe that I had given myself over so completely to someone who would do something like this. It was overwhelming. I've changed and grown a whole lot since then in a whole lot of different ways. I mean, one of the things I learned was not to be afraid of times when things are stable and if emotional, you know, past issues come up, then just face them and deal with them and learn from them and grow from them. And in, and in doing that, it's a lot less trouble and it's a lot less scary than going so far out of my way to avoid things. But also, I was looking for a rescuer at that time in my life, and even before that, you know, when I married my husband and just all the different relationships I had before that, I was always looking for somebody to rescue me, and it never worked out. Now I can take care of myself. I'm still open to other people, and I still want to have relationships with people, but I don't need somebody to rescue me. I realize after I've been through all those things and I came out on the other side and I'm fine now, I can rescue myself. I did rescue myself from my father, from Larry, from all those situations. Nobody came in and did it for me. I did it, you know, to protect myself. And I don't look to anybody else to do that for me anymore. So I'd say that's the biggest thing.
This is Risk. This is the Postal Service behind me now, and we just heard from the amazing Ashley Bailey. Ashley really worked hard to review all of that life experience, and it was really an honor to work with her on it. Actually, she first told that story at a show called Arc Stories. You can find them at arcstories.com, and Taylor Robinson, who runs Arc Stories, helped us record that story with her. So check them out in Birmingham, Alabama. And our final story today comes from a good friend of mine, the amazing Baron Vaughn. Baron is a stand-up. You can find him on Conan, on The Fallon Show, but most recently, you can find him on Netflix's Grace and Frankie, working with none other than Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. Baron told this amazing story at the Risk Live show at the Nerdist showroom in Los Angeles. We have a show there once a month. Here he is now with a story we call Me, Myself, and I. Hello, I'm Sarah Benincasa. Um, how are you? Good. Okay. Um, I've had a really interesting last couple of years. Um, I don't know if you guys have been reading the news, but I am in this place where I'm like, well, I better get some, you know, personal insight before I get shot. So I have started going, started going to therapy. Um, which I didn't even know I could do uh, because I'm black and uh, we weren't told that we could do that. Nobody has told us about therapy. We're not taught about depression when we're children. We're taught about oppression. Oppression is totally different. (laughs) Oppression is you in the street going, the man needs to be stopped. And then other people clap and go, preach, brother. But then depression is you alone in the bathroom mirror looking at your face for so long that it no longer makes sense and you go oh my god I am the man and I need to be stopped and nobody says anything because you're alone even when you're with others who's with me so um, part of the alone club Um, and so in that I have started thinking a lot about this world that we have created because we have created so many problems in this world but we also think that we have all of the solutions we labor under the illusion that we made this therefore we can fix this and i don't necessarily know that is true and so i started to look to things that existed before the united states and even before the language of english i heard a person on a podcast Um, who is an expert on addiction and uses a very ancient Amazonian tea (laughs) called ayahuasca in his therapy. And I started getting very interested in this and I found a uh, retreat to go to in the jungle. (laughs) And they welcomed me there. They had fun and games. The only black person who makes Guns N' Roses references. But anyway, 
I um, went to learn about what it is that is going on with me because I've, I've been doing well, which is messing me up. <laughs> because we all have, like there's an idea that there's this equation, like if I can just get X, then I will feel Y. But then the thing is, sometimes when you get X, you don't feel Y because you have absolutely no practice feeling good about yourself. There's no external thing that you're going to grasp and be like, oh, all the emotions I never had are going to be there finally. I got certain things and I was like, oh, I still don't feel good. I'm waiting for this to be ruined. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like I couldn't get to this point in myself where I felt okay. And I went to this thing and um, there's a long preparation where you have to follow a certain diet for a certain amount of time and get certain things out of your system. And then I was there. And whew, it's a very interesting process that I did because we had three ceremonies. If you don't know what ayahuasca is, it is um, basically a concentration of uh, something called DMT, which I'm sure all of you have heard about. And you have to do it to do it well with the qualified shaman because a shaman is not only a spiritual doctor, but a spiritual bouncer. <laughs> because once your shit's open, motherfuckers can get in there. So there's got to be someone there to be like, yeah, you, yeah, you, not you, you're cool, fuck you, fuck you, you can come in, sort of thing. Or you might get bad messages. I remember hearing this guy talk about these ancient civilizations like the Mayas, the Incas, and the Aztecs that all used this tea. And he said that the Aztecs were a culture of serial killers and that they used this tea, but they didn't do it right, so they met dark spirits that demanded of them 50 sacrifices a motherfucking day, because that's what the Aztecs did. And I was like, I don't want to sacrifice motherfuckers, better go to a good <laughs> I know that's an understatement. I think a lot of us in this room don't want to sacrifice a motherfucker, but uh, gotta put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I don't want to sacrifice a motherfucker. <laughs> Spell it M-O apostrophe. E-R, ma, fa. Anyway, that is a tangent, won't you cosign? I went to this retreat, and um, there's a lot of preparation. You know, you have to get yourself into a good mental state. You have to think about what it is that you want. You enter into it with an intention. And so it was a very interesting experience. Like there's a bunch of people there and we're all on beds and blankets and then there's tea and then we drink it and then it takes about 30, 40 minutes for it to kick in and then the shaman start chanting something called the Icaros, which are like these ancient prayers. And basically it's like your guide through the experience. It's like Tinkerbell and you follow it <laughs> through your imagination jungle. And I had this one, the first ceremony I had was a very physical experience. My intention was show me who I am because I get very confused because I am a black man and according to the news, I'm the scariest motherfucking thing in this country. But also at the same time, the way that I grew up in a black neighborhood, I was not accepted amongst my peers. So my peers were like, you're not black enough. And then white people were like, but you're still black. So then I was like, where do I belong? I don't know. And then I also live in Hollywood where I'm an actor. Also confusing. Be more this, less that. But less this, but like big, but like a small big. Like just always. 
like that. Like, we want a lot, but like a little. Yeah. Do nothing, but at the same time, do something. We love you, but you're not right. We hate you, come over. Sort of thing all the time, so it can be very confusing about what one's identity might be. So that was my first question, you know, my, my intention. Show me who I am, because I, I want it to know. So about 30 minutes, the chanting starts, and then I, I didn't know what I expected the visions to look like. I expected them to look like a movie, as vivid as that. But basically, it was as if I was remembering things really well that I have already seen, like a really vivid memory. And I was... I, it was like a jump cut. At first, what happened is I started kind of, I had a very physical experience, basically. I was told she uses what you know, and I say she because she is a female plant. She's a female spirit. She is a mother, and a mother always gives you what you need, not necessarily what you want. Because if you're too hung up on what you want, you might not be able to receive what you need. And I was not hung up on what I wanted. I wanted, I just know what I, it's like I'm ready for whatever the fuck I need. And then suddenly I was, uh, my arm was being moved by something that was not me. I was hitting my chest rhythmically with the chanting. My mouth started moving and I had the experience of being a tribal leader a couple different times. A couple times I was a man, a couple times I was a woman. I was a walrus, I was an eagle, I was a, a worm. And, but while I was those things, I didn't know that I was those things because a walrus doesn't go, I'm a fucking walrus, it just is. <laughs> That's essentially the message I received everything external that is telling you you're this you're this you're this is false it's only an internal sense but it can be very confusing to constantly have to entertain all these external voices anyway so i had this very i had an actory experience you know when actors go like i'm just a fucking vessel and then <laughs> and then i want to punch him in the face i'm just like shut up but that said i was just a vessel i mean i had like a marionette-like experience where I was suddenly being moved and I had this, I kind of acted all of these different beings and all these different lives. A lot of people there had a really hard time because people have a hard time letting go because something can happen where you might purge, you might vomit, and a lot of people are like, I don't want to fucking vomit. And you, if you get too hung up on that, because it might not be that, it might not happen in that way. Also, they're shitting yourself. A lot of people are like, I don't want to shit myself. And someone, a uh, helper, was just like, every summer, somebody does shit themselves. <laughs> uh, it happens once, once, every, once every retreat. Somebody shits themselves. And I heard that, and I thought I was cool with that idea, but I, I was like, I don't want to fucking shit myself. That guy, because I actually have a lot of poop shame. And I say this thing, I used to tell this to people, I, and people would gasp. Are you ready to gasp? I'll tell you something that's true about me. I shit twice a week. Right, it's not healthy. It's definitely not healthy. It's because I'm disgusted. Because someone else's poop, I don't care. But mine's disgusting. I don't like the way it feels, I don't like the way it looks, I definitely don't like the way it smells. And so I would just hold it and hold it and hold it to like inhuman amounts. I was having all sorts of digestion problems and wondering why. <laughs> Suddenly I'm in the jungle of a different country 
faced with this idea of like someone might shit themselves and so I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm gonna shit myself. <laughs> and I think it comes from a childhood thing because I don't remember being potty trained but I definitely remember using the toilet and then not knowing how to wipe myself. So I would call out for help and one of my great grandparents, I was raised by my great grandparents, totally different story. <laughs> For a different risk. Thank you, falsetto Michael McDonald. Um, I would call for help, and then they would help me. And I was a child, so it was like I felt taken care of. But also, it's a butthole, so it like feels good. So it's like a combination of like I'm being taken care of. This feels good. But they were old black Southern church people, so at some point they felt the shame, and then I took it. And then from that moment on, I was like, my butt's gross. And I, it was just stuck in there and I wasn't conscious of it. And then my second ayahuasca ceremony, unlike the first, very different, so completely different. And unlike the first one, it was, I first had the experience of like light vibrating off of me, like some sort of surgery was being performed. And then I was like, am I done? And she was like, yeah, you're done. And I'm like, but the, the whole thing just started. Like this, I, did I pick something stupid? I should have picked something stupid. Because my second intention was, show me how to heal myself, right? So I'm going into a dark place, just like, I'm stupid, I'm an idiot, I should have picked something better. And then this shaman comes over to me and sits in front of me and chants, and it's dark, because your senses are crazy. And he starts to chant. And then suddenly I have the most vivid vision I saw this mountain and then this river twisting up in the mountain at the top was the bright bright sun and then I looked at the river again and I saw that it was actually the shape of the human intestinal tract you know when you have that anatomy class and you see what it looks like for the first time you're like oh that's in, whoa, that's in there <laughs> but this river looked exactly like that and there was just like these turquoise lights just kind of like shooting around and I was like oh interesting and then suddenly my physical body leaned forward. And then I had this vision of almost like LED lights in a rectangle. And then suddenly at the bottom was this like fire, this bar of fire it was red and orange and yellow. And I, I felt this tremendous burning in my stomach. And I was like, oh, this doesn't feel good, but I'm gonna let this happen. I'm gonna let this happen. I'm gonna see what happens. And then suddenly the pain let up and then I saw these like square shapes that had circles and almost like a CD was inside of it just spinning around and they were there was a bunch of them and they were moving around like bloop, 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 like basically like pressure luck they're just like beep 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 beep, beep. and I was like no whammies and um, then suddenly it went and I shit myself like just the most profound poo all down my pants and it felt so good. I smiled and I went, of course I shit myself. Of course I'm the guy. Oh, you got me. That's what I said. He's like, you got me. And she was like, mommy. I am an ancient spirit. Time is an illusion. I'm everywhere all the time. And I was like, oh, damn. And I got up, and I had this biggest smile on my face, and I cannot, I cannot describe the sense of relief that I felt. And I almost got, I got, not almost, I got the message that 
I shit out depression <laughs> and anxiety and these insane allergies I've been having for a while. <laughs> but I definitely shit out my poop shame. I shit out my shame about shit. <laughs> and ever since then, I've been regular. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> ever since then. shame had to get to his 30s and shit himself in a jungle <laughs> to be like you know this is okay it's just fucking shit who gives one me all down my pants it was also the only day I wore white underwear I don't own any white underwear some I asked someone gave me a pair and I was like oh, I guess I'll wear these uh. And so not only did I shit myself, but in a way that everyone could see. <laughs> shit myself in a jungle. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Good night. for this week's episode, folks. This is Gabine featuring the great Dee Dee Bridgewater behind me now. And we are returning to the Bell House in Brooklyn on February 24th. That's going to be a hell of a show. A star-studded show. Then on February 25th, we are at the Nerdist Showroom in Los Angeles on March 10th. We are in Chicago, Illinois. The theme is ecstatic. The pitch deadline has passed, but if you have a burning desire to pitch us something, for gosh sakes, do go to the submissions page at wrist-show.com. On March 26, we return to Washington, D.C. And 
We're still taking pitches for that one. The pitch deadline for DC is February 27th, and the theme is powerless. Now, we have a string of shows in April happening up in the Northwest on April 27th. We are in Vancouver, Canada. The theme that night is overwhelmed. The pitch deadline is March 30th. On April 28th, we're in Seattle, Washington. The theme that night is Enraged. The pitch deadline is March 31st. On April 30th, we're in Portland, Oregon. The pitch deadline for that one is April 2nd. The theme that night is Despair. All this information is on the submissions page at risk-show.com. How to pitch us? what the themes are, what the pitch deadlines are. So go find it there and definitely pitch us. Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, we are coming soon. Boston, St. Louis, and Minneapolis are all to be determined. So keep checking back. And if you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I got what it takes to tell a story on risk. Hey, go check us out at thestorystudio.org. There's one-on-one training. There's video courses you can take in your own time. And maybe your staff would like a corporate workshop. That's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I said, leap into my arms, babe. Come on, dive into the snow. Come on, jump into my bobsled. Come on, dive into my soul. I said, leap into my arms, babe. Come on, dive into my soul. Come on, jump into my heart, babe. Come on, dive in my soul. Risk.